Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural, Season 5, Episode 19, Hammer of the Gods. Let's get this show on the road. So just before we get started with this episode that we have so much to talk about, we just really want to thank everybody for leaving us ratings and reviews. Like, honestly, we really appreciate it. And this is really incredibly helpful. So thank you very much to everyone. It really is so nice to see those stars pop up and seeing little comments people share, like melts my heart. So thank you so much. Okay, Drew, tell me everything. I need to like go through like what happened. So right away, I'm going to just like spoilers on this for like Drew spoilers. This may be my new favorite episode. Ooh, okay. Even over changing channels? Because I love a, a good comedy episode. There's tons of episodes that I think are funny and like standalone. This is incredibly good world building, incredibly good mythology minus one small spot where they failed. We'll get to later. It feels like the kind of thing that like, I don't think I ever sped out loud, but like I actively was like, like at any point are we going to have like the other gods like give their opinion? Because like we keep saying God's not around, but like, We've already proven other religions exist. And like, what about their gods? So having an episode where they literally have like a business meeting to me was magical. And the funniest thing is I'm sitting there and I always kind of play this game now where I'm like, what could this title mean? And I'm like, Hammer of the Gods, Thor. I doubt this is an episode about Thor. They wouldn't bring in other gods just yet. And well, I was incredibly wrong and incredibly right. <laughs> uh, because we get Thor's father and brother. There's a missed opportunity here to talk about Thor and Loki, but anyway, we'll sidestep that one. I feel like leaving Thor out of this may have been a smart move on their part, just kind of going with like, like on one side, less well-known, at least in major Western culture gods, like names you may have heard, like I'll admit, we'll talk about them more later. Some of them I very clearly knew, but obviously not in detail, and some were completely new to me. And I consider myself as much as someone who doesn't follow any particular religion that these gods are associated with, someone who is very interested in religious studies and mythology. So I would expect myself to be a little bit above average in most people's knowledge of, you know, other cultures, deities. So the fact that there were that many surprises here is impressive to me. Well, I definitely have some thoughts about the way that that was used. So I'm very excited to start talking about that with you. But first, can you give us a recap of the episode? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. Brothers in a storm show up at this motel like they would any other time, but it's like kind of nice and fancy and they get there and they're like right away like, oh, this is like nice and weird. What's going on? And Sam's immediately suspicious and Dean's immediately like, ooh, free pie. And then it turns out that this uh, motel hotel is actually kind of secretly all of the gods of all the other major religions and getting together to basically go like, yeah, we're not cool with this whole apocalypse thing that Judeo-Christians are doing. How do we stop it? And clearly it's getting Sam and Dean because they're the key to all this. And then Gabriel shows up and is all like, you know what? I'm going to save the day because me and Callie got a thing. And then he's like, no, I'm actually going to save the day because you guys are right. My brother's an asshole. And then Lucifer shows up, kills him. It's horrifying. A lot of gods are dead. They get away. Time? There you go. Oh my God. What a badass episode. I know there's so much to talk about. We have to hop into the long game. I just know that I'm constantly muttering like wow under my breath. 
I really like this episode, but then upon rewatch and critical thinking about it, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I like it. <laughs> see, I'll be curious to see if I don't get there through critical talk, because I think even just in doing my research for this episode, which we'll get to later, on the different gods we meet, I kind of start to see the issues with the episode. But I think it'll be an interesting conversation, so we'll continue. So long game, what do we need to keep track of from this episode? I just really love that Callie is drinking a Cosmo. Like, it's just so sex in the city. <laughs> it really is. Like, it just fits her really well. So this is an all-you-can-eat buffet with a whole section of just pies. And Sam is eating a plate full of what looks like steamed vegetables and maybe some grilled chicken in the middle. And he gives his chocolate to Dean uh, once they get in the room. I just want us to notice that. That is another subject we will get to. <laughs> Cass and Adam are still MIA. I really thought Adam would be like an afterthought in this episode. Like if they even did refer to last week, they'd be like, oh, we still don't know where Cass is. And like, just assume Adam is dead. I mean, why would he be alive? To be fair, Adam is an afterthought in this episode. Like he's in a throwaway line, but he's there. Cass is in a throwaway line this episode, but he gets billing with Adam, which just shows that Adam matters a little bit. A little bit. We get another let's get this show on the road. We do from friggin' Balder. Very exciting. The trickster is back. Uh, and we know, obviously, from Changing Channels that he's the Archangel Gabriel. Uh, but to these people, to these gods, he's Loki. That's how he's being addressed uh, when he first shows up. And again, he mentions that he's in witness protection. I understand tricking humans into making, you, making them believe he's a different god or godlike figure. But to trick other gods into this... <laughs> I know there's the whole reveal of Callie's like, I knew, but like, if you really have a background in Norse mythology, you understand the relationship between Baldur, Odin, and Loki. Like, that's saying something. Like, where is the real Loki? That's my question. <laughs> where are Thor and Loki in all of this? Another very important, because that's the thing, like, they talk, we will end up talking about Cain and Abel, where we've heard about Michael and Lucifer, and I feel like Thor and Loki is just such a missed opportunity. Reason I think Thor shouldn't have been here is because I think it would have been way too much to cram into an episode with how much we already have going on. There was also a really quick Ghost Facers interlude. That was really confusing. I was sitting here like, what? Like, I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm just really confused. Why is this happening? It was actually to promote the Ghost Facers web series, which was airing at the time. Keep in mind that was in 2010 when web series were a big thing. And this was like pre-streaming uh, and before like Netflix and the rest of them like got really big, but mostly Netflix at the time. Yeah, there was part of me that was like, is this like a shift in perspective within the episode by the trickster? Like, is this, is this like a, a trick? Is this like a changing channels thing? And then it was back to the episode. And I was like, no, that was legitimately just a commercial in the middle of my show on Netflix or on prime, whatever. <laughs> like that's the kind of thing. Like, I feel like you would edit that out of like the TV release version or the streaming version. The fact that it's still there, I think is kind of iconic. I love that. It's still there. I think it's great. Lucifer's vessel is disintegrating like more and more and we're starting to like see it more and more also. Yep. I also just want us to note that Lucifer kills Gabriel, the archangel, with an angel blade. He does, yes. This was also implied to be what Gabriel planned to use to kill Lucifer, which absolutely to me is just sort of like flavor of archangels are equally susceptible to angel blades as any other angel. Yeah, there you go. So okay. that's, I think, something to remember. Okay. 
Even after his death, Gabriel manages to give the brothers a really key piece of information about Lucifer's cage and how they can basically cage him back. And the key to the cage is made up of the four rings of the four horsemen. Like, I, I can't remember what we talked about before, but I knew that the four rings would be important for some reason. Yeah, because, they, well, they've been collecting them, right? And, like, when you start, like, gotta catch them all kind of thing, then there's something about them. I love how I think with the rings, we've now gone Lord of the Rings, Pokemon. I think we did Captain Planet last time. <laughs> how many more ring properties can we abuse this with? We'll see. We also get a little preview of Pestilence, which, again, having lived through... And still uh, living through a global pandemic, I, I view very differently now. But anyway, we'll talk about him more like in upcoming episodes. Yeah, I just thought that was a really um, interesting way to end the episode. I feel like we've gotten like I'm used to a next time on segment, but a straight up like cold close almost, I guess, is the term I would describe it as. You know, it's one of those things where like they just needed extra minutes. <laughs> I mean, potentially that makes perfect sense. Maybe. I don't know. In the meantime... Story time. Today our theme is Mirage. Interesting. Yeah, a little bit different from what we usually do. So Mirage comes from the Latin to look at or to wander at. And uh, the French, uh, to look at oneself or to be reflected also related to the words admire, miracle, and marvel. I love that kind of like spread of the word, how like, yes, you kind of draw, like as soon as you hear it, you can immediately draw those connections. But like the fact that it's like this one, like one core word with all these roots that spread in different directions. I love it. Yeah, I think it's really cool because it gives us also like, like just little breadcrumbs of things that might be related and different lenses to think about. The characters and the episode and all of that stuff. Just so that we're all like on the same page with that, a mirage is basically, so I'm just going to read the definition. It's a naturally occurring optical phenomenon in which light rays bend via refraction to produce a displaced image of distant objects or the sky. So it's not a hallucination. I want to be super clear about that. It's visual. You can share it with somebody. Like, you can see it as much as someone else can. And it can be captured by cameras as well. So it's really something that is optical. That's a good, it's a good delineation. I like that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I sort of wanted to be very clear about that because it's, it's a trick of the eye for the trickster episode. Of course, you found a way to tie it together. I love it. I mean, obviously, a little bit of thought went into this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in other words, mirages are real, but they're also a trick, right? Just like what I just said, that our eyes are playing on us, like a distortion of reality. No, it, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's very telling for this episode, which is kind of the reason we pick these themes. So shall we hop in and tell me what you have to say about Sam so we can uh, dig in a little bit? I think it's really important to mention that we don't really see all that much growth in the brothers this episode. Like it's a filler in that sense, which is fine because it's still really fun. And I, I never skip this one when I'm rewatching, just planting the seed that this will not be on my skip list. No, I agree. This is definitely an episode I'm going to be defending if we have to uh, next round of this. I know. They have this really good like habit of like doing filler episodes and then just kind of like dropping some sort of like, here's some very crucial knowledge for the series at the end. If the realization of uh, using the rings to trap Lucifer came in any other form, 
this episode could be removed without ruining the plot. Absolutely. But it's just too good. <laughs> well, I think the only thing that it's the the trickster's death, right? Gabriel's death that we would need to like to kind of close. But so there's like two things that kind of hit me with regards to Sam this week. And the first one is when he's complaining about like eating pie when there's an apocalypse happening and they still don't know where Cass and Adam are. But the thing is, he's not actually eating pie. He's at an all-you-can-eat buffet that has an entire section filled with pies, and he's eating what looks like a plateful of steamed vegetables. And, like, he's not eating because the plate is, like, untouched. And I think that this is significant because of what we've been seeing happening with Sam's dietary preferences this season. But also this is an episode where the monster of the week are cooking and eating people and thinking about the theme of mirage and Sam's relationship with food and previous demon blood consumption. I think that Sam is very careful with what he eats because he's never really sure what's in his food. We're seeing something here in Sam that I kind of noticed a while ago and it's kind of a continuing trend in the last few episodes he is seeing through this mirage almost instantly. Like things seem out of place or weird and he's on it instantly. And I think that is kind of like half intuition, half paranoia at this point. This hotel seems a little too good to be true. Something's wrong. You know, or just the paranoia of like things just feel a little strange and we're kind of on edge because it's the apocalypse. But I must point out then that Dean uh, is more than content to lean into it because it's a nice break or reward. But yeah, Sam's suspicion is just immediate. And I think that just goes to show where he's at right now. I think this is a huge shift for Dean, which we'll get to later. But for Sam, this is a, he is now growing. He has to be more self-reliant. And in doing so, he needs to be a little more aware of his surroundings. And he is more quick to question things or be cautious. And I think part of this was a too good to be true. Something's probably wrong. I like this little, like observation and how that ties in actually because I like my point was like a, a bit more macro than this but I find that this little like like it just fits so well what you just said I completely agree with you like even to go back to like I know there's kind of this like even I've admitted to it before there's kind of this like I can't think of the right word almost like gaslighting the audience into like Sam's eating habits how it's like he's always been the healthy one and it's like no he was like a normal eater and just not a pig and he's now kind of gone more healthy. I almost see that too now as a like, you know, it used to just be food was food. I eat food to get energy and keep going. And now it's, well, I could order something a little healthier and not consume as many bad calories and like be more energetic and more healthy. Like now what used to just be an automatic response of just I get food, food go in, I go be Sam is now a thought out process where there's a little more micromanagement involved. I sort of want to remove the word healthy from this equation because I don't think it's about quote unquote health. I think it's about something else. And I I don't think it's about health again, because anyway, some foods are not unhealthy and some foods are not healthy. It's all about the balance and the moderation and, and et cetera and, and all of that stuff. So like, I to me, I think it's more about like, you know, when people are like, I want to avoid all toxins. And I sort of feel like that's where Sam is. And I'm not sure that that is a true place of health. If you look back at that sentence I said, or a little blurb I went on before that, and put health in air quotes every time and understand that I'm referring to like the commercial version of healthy that we all know is just like marketing. 
it's that level of healthy. It's the like what is perceived as healthier because marketing told me it's healthy, even though it's just food. Yes, it's just food. Morally neutral. Again, for Sam, I think it's more about the processing of it. I can see that. Because steamed vegetables are probably the least processed things you can have apart from raw vegetables. And so I think that there's something there for Sam. But anyway, we'll come back to that. The second thing is just like how scared he is when he sees Lucifer. And like, obviously, when you think about it, like when Sam is looking at Lucifer, he's looking at what he could become if he says yes to him. And that's literally the root of the word mirage in action. This feels like Sam meeting an AU Sam, <laughs> the alternate universe where he said yes to him in the first ki- in the first place. You know, uh, seeing this evil creature, this demonic force, these evil powers, not just, ooh, this is horrifying. It's, oh, that could have been me. That could still be me. And that's really messing him up. And I think you put it very well. It's literally seeing a mirage like i'm sure there's a moment where all sam can picture is himself in those shoes or as the meat suit shoes i guess included and then also i think something else this episode does that i don't really know where else to bring up here but i guess it's kind of good to like put it in words here is this is also a like visualization of the power scale that is currently going on around them up until this point lucifer's powers have kind of just been words on a page we've seen him in action really like once and it was devastating but to see him go up against these other like god creatures and other gods just to demolish them i think takes what was once a concept of power what was once i'm trying to find the word wait stick mirage in there but i think it's very clear what i mean here we're seeing like we're seeing uh, words turn to action and just how powerful he really is. And it's almost like we're stripping away what we thought was a mirage. And it was like, oh, he's like this mythical beast and he's so powerful and he'll, he could destroy anyone with a snap of his fingers to, oh, he just snapped his fingers and a bunch of people died real quick. And those people should not have died real quick. Yeah. You said it well at the top. The brothers don't really develop much in this episode. I think we're kind of just sort of seeing a, they're not stagnant. We're just kind of seeing their new forms a little bit more. We're seeing the braver, smarter, more th- more paranoid slash uh, conscious of his surrounding Sam. And we're seeing how that plays out in a new scenario again. Can I get started with Dean? I was hoping you would. Honestly, in this episode, like Dean is the one to break the mirage or at least to like not trust them. But although like you gave a really good example of Sam not trusting the hotel or the motel. I'm thinking about him like seeing Ganesh uh, in his elephant form, uh, finding out that the tomato soup is not, in fact, tomato (laughs) soup. And he's also the one who finds the wedding ring in the newlyweds room. And then finally, he also tells the gods that Gabriel isn't dead. Just to really like start off here with Dean is, first thing, a Dean moment. Dean basically like having the balls to stand up in front of these gods and speak to them as (laughs) Like he's on their level. And I don't think it's a cockiness. I think it's a pure, like, I just have to shoot my shot here. Otherwise, like, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. And I think that is part of, like, moving away the mysticalness. I feel like, I feel like Mirage, and we kind of, like, in the, 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 like, list of other words it's tied to, 
a mirage almost seems like it's something unbelievable or mystical in some sense. Like, is it really there? Is it real? Is it all in my head? Am I actually seeing this? Well, it's something that doesn't quite make sense to us with what we know, right? So I, I agree with what you're saying. In doing this, he is basically like tearing away that like facade of the whole thing and being like, you are real. You exist. You are you. I am me. Here is our current situation. I'm putting cards on the table. I'm clearing up what is Mirage versus what is actually in front of me. But also, I really want to kind of go on here. I think like the whole like enjoying his time and enjoying his pie and even going for the extra chocolate and like, you know, right away he has the two plates of pie and he goes for the extra cherry on top. They're like, there seems to be this new kind of like lightheartedness and laid backness to Dean since uh, being saved from um, becoming a meat puppet. It reminds me of Dean back when he was also about to be, you know, dead. There's just kind of like this, this facade he puts up, this like fake image of himself of just like, I'm enjoying myself. Everything's fine. We deserve a break. We're not all about to die in an apocalypse. Isn't that necessary, though, to sort of still enjoy the little moments when faced with like this kind of apoc- literally apocalyptic like outcome? The other part of this is as I'm like putting these like, you know, into words, I'm also just thinking like, but I agree with him. Like, you're allowed to take a break just because, you know, you have a really big exam coming up at the end of the month and you're studying for it. Doesn't mean you can't take a night off. Doesn't mean you can't take a few hours to, you know, watch a movie. You, you, in fact, you need these things to be able to cope with what you're going through and making sure you're well rested and ready for the exam at the end of all this. And while the exam in this scenario is a battle to the death with Lucifer, who is able to murder multiple gods without breaking a sweat, even in a meat suit that is falling apart. I'm just going to say that sounds like a really rough final exam to me, but whatever. I hope you all brought your cheat sheets. Literally pulls out a pulls out sword. Uh, I guess it works. <laughs> uh, Bobby, we've got some questions. But honestly, like what you're saying also about him just enjoying the little like amenities, basically, has really big bugs energy. Yes, again, we keep going back I to this. I know, we for keep some, going back to freaking bugs. <laughs> that one, like that one 30 second scene of Dean in a towel impressed by a nice shower, I think has done more for his character development than like most episodes that try to do something for his character development do. Not entirely. There's some amazing Dean development over the season, but the fact that that little bit from such a crummy episode has stood the test of time. (laughs) I know. I'm very surprised too, honestly. I, I, I agree with you. Also in keeping with him sort of like breaking the mirage, he's also the one who calls out Gabriel on being too scared to confront Lucifer. (laughs) which also i just love it's so like it's done with no like pomp and circumstance it's really just like a matter of fact like by the way he's hiding in a truck outside like he's not dead like like he's like not like he escaped or like i brought him back in he's no he's just hiding in the backseat of some car out there i'm sorry guys (laughs) i feel like since that moment that you know they trapped gabriel in the holy oil fire dean is just like yeah he's just like any other angel he can be like like, I know, I know what to do. Like, it's fine. I actually think it might be one step below other angels. <laughs> I think he sees him as, like, not lesser than, like, him or anything, but I think he's, like, he puts him on, like, a, a lower pedestal than he would other angels for some reason. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> he's, like, disenchanted by it. It's like, uh, it's, it's, it's like, I almost want to say it's like when you're a kid and you're afraid of, like, something at, like, a, 
a haunted house and you go back years later and you see it again you almost laugh at it because it's like oh my god i was afraid of this thing like he's now he's like we've beaten you multiple times like yeah you always get away you're kind of an idiot you got your one-liners like i i know the spiel like get on with it what's going on i mean to be fair gabriel did go from like trying to cut dean into little pieces with a chainsaw murderer to like giving him porn like i feel like that's a big shift on paper, no. Gabriel? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Fair enough. Transition from guy wanted to murder me to guy gave me porn just seems too normal almost <laughs> for this show. Speaking of Gabriel, our trickster king, the master of mirage, if you will. So he gives the gods a very convincing death scene, but it turns out that he's just in the parking lot as we found out, which is just so like mundane. And I think like works well in terms of like showing how something that can look as grandiose and strange as a mirage can in fact be so, so simple to explain. See, I almost go a step further and I also see it as like seeing a magician do a trick and then do like, you know, years later do a trick that's a little like not as good quality. And then like it keeps getting like less and less quality because they have less budget for it. <laughs> like a more grandiose Gabriel would have been like a bigger reveal of his like, I'm still alive. <laughs> and now it's just like, I'm in the car. Come on. <laughs> a little less like grandiose almost, which I think almost goes to show that he's like, it seems like the best way to say it. Like he's like his utility belt is running low. He has to rely on the less impressive moves now. Maybe it also has to do with like how much time he's had to prepare for this particular one, you know, because I think, you know, before the apocalypse, like maybe he had a bit more time to like hone his tricks, if we want to talk about it that way. But also we've always kind of been in his playground. You're in my world now and suddenly he has control over things here. He's playing on someone else's turf or in someone else's sandbox, if you will. I loved him this episode. He was so good. There was like, I kind of always, like I didn't expect a redemption arc for him. So when we did get it, it felt so good and literally turned him from like one of like my favorite, like secondary characters to a character I was hoping we would see more of. And then he goes and gets murdered. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. Yeah. And I almost like, it's almost like he, I don't think it was sacrificial. Like I think he knew there was a chance this would fail. But I think he is suddenly, he's almost like learned the lesson that like the entire show seems to be revolving around constantly, which is the idea of picking your own family. And he is finally choosing his found family over his blood family. Do angels have blood? Not important right now. Maybe tomato soup? <laughs> tomato soup. No. Oh, all this to say is I think the visuals and like kind of like, again, to use the mirage metaphor here of like, you know, what family is meant to be. Like we are told this is what family is. And for so long, it's always like family comes first before you realize that family is who you choose, not who you're given. And he has finally broken through that veneer thanks to people he actually cares about more, i.e. Callie, and people caring about him because as much as everyone kind of gives him shit, he kind of realizes like, his brothers didn't care for him. If his brothers cared for him, he wouldn't be an outcast like this. And I think he's finally like, he's seeing past the mirage for what it actually is. Yeah, that tearing down of the mirage, I think is really important in this episode. I think for as short-lived, but attended, that his uh, transformation was, I think it spoke volumes for the messaging of the show 
the characters of the show and like where we're going, it seems like this is a kind of moment I can feel will like stick with me throughout the next 10 seasons as like a major emblem of like, you know, making the right choice, free will and your found family. I think one thing I find sad is that it's very, it seems like it didn't need to happen this way. You know, like it, it feels unnecessary. There's a lot about about Gabriel we can get into. We'll save for another day. Um, But it feels like it was one of those like, oh, had he only made this realization sooner, what could have been? And the his loss is due to the fact that it took so long that he only had the chance to do this one thing. And I mean, technically two things. He also gives that amazing hidden message. I'm sure other things in that video we don't need to talk about. Let's move on to critical time. Let's do it. Oh, who was the writer for this episode? I just got a really bad feeling in my gut. Why? Why? So at the top of the episode, you mentioned, you know, concerns with this episode. And like, even like right away, as soon as you bring in other cultures, you know, there's always going to be room for poor writing or some uh, issues with representation. And I feel like we have a certain writing duo who has a common trend of this. This episode was written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin with a story by David Reed. David Reed was a script supervisor for Supernatural, and he came up with the story for this episode and another one in season six. He also wrote the book Bobby Singer's Guide to Hunting. Oh, is there another like canonical book within the? I know there's the John's Journal. I didn't know Bobby had a hunting guide. Bobby has a hunting guide. Canonical is a very big word. You want to be maybe careful when using it because, yes, this is an authorized book by the Supernatural franchise. What you consider canon really changes depending on the on the definition that you choose to use. Sorry, you are right. Yes, I think I meant officially released in-universe uh, documentation. The director for this episode was Rick Boda, and this is his only one for Supernatural. He worked on a lot of other cool projects. Uh, He was on the cinematography team for The West Wing and Jericho. He was also the director of photography for House on Haunted Hill. Uh, He directed an episode of The Vampire Diaries. And the interesting thing about him, though, that I really want to note is that he started working on horror movies. Or that's how he he got his start, basically. And some of his first projects were Hellraisers, Hellseeker, Hellraisers 2, Deader, and Hellraiser's 3, Hellworld. You know, that is like the one horror franchise I never got into, and I really need to give it a shot one of these days. So this name might be a little familiar, and you might not be too sure why, but let me bring you back to episode 218, Hollywood Babylon, where Sam and Dean infiltrate the set of Hellhazers 2, The Reckoning. Oh, of course, of course, that was the connection we were going to make. Yes. So I just think that that's really cool that we literally have like somebody who is part of the supernatural lore or like who inspired some of the supernatural lore to be a part of of the production team. Also, can I just say, as the director of photography for House on Haunted Hill, you caused me so many nightmares as a child, Rick. (laughs) That movie... Like, there are still a few scenes in that film that are, like, so perfectly ingrained in my mind as horrifying me. That, like, when I do rewatch it as rare as it is, I know when to, like, blink a little extra just to be safe. Do you want to crack open the Hunter's Journal for us? 
And I also need to preface that this journal will be a little different from the other ones. I feel like this episode has, for the first time in quite some time, dumped a lot of uh, new uh, players on the field. While most of them don't seem to make it out of this episode, a lot of them come from cultures and backgrounds that, like I said before, even I had to research. Not to say that I knew all of them off the top of my head, even the ones I knew I researched about new things. So I figure, like any real hunter, this journal also has to have proper notes in it. Editorialized, maybe, but proper. So today, our Hunter's Journal will be looking into a few of the big players in this week's episode. Up first is the Elysian Fields, which is not a character per se, the motel that acts as our trap for the brothers and some poor innocent soon-to-be meals, uh, is named after the Greek hero's afterlife. I feel like a more pop culture version of this might be Valhalla, the Norse version of this, but it is the warrior's ultimate reward is death in battle or death as a hero to go to the Elysian Fields as their version of like warrior's heaven. So I just want to share something that's really funny because genuinely only a French person would like think this. But when I saw the Elysian Fields, I was like, oh, comme les Champs-Élysées. Like I, I was thinking about les Champs-Élysées, but what? But that's what it is, basically. Oh, is it actually where, where Champs-Élysées gets its name from? Yes, absolutely. That is exactly where it is because l'Arc de Triomphe is, is like a war memorial. Oh my god, I never made that connection. Yeah, it's where the heroes go get their rest. The war memorial for the heroes. The one time I was at the Champs-Élysées, I did eat some of the best dessert of my life and was basically in heaven, so I understand. There you go. <laughs> uh, next on our list is Ganesh, who is the first god we see in a non-human form, and one of the few. They are part of the Hindu pantheon, which is itself home to many gods, kind of like other cultures that are not monotheistic. A lot of the gods are like worshipped by different sects of the religion, and Ganesh does have their uh, his own sect, but is often one that is like considered of like the proper gods across all the sects. They're not like just for one, although they have their like main one. They are considered the supreme god of the, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, I'm sorry, Ganapatya sect, and is quite frequently depicted in arts as a man with an elephant's head. So the elephant imagery in the episode actually does work, I don't think they do much else with Ganesh in this episode. I think they maybe have one or two lines at the table, and that's about it. Uh, next up is Mercury from Roman mythology. Uh, as we most people do know, the Roman uh, gods, there are the, the 12 main gods, the highest tier of gods, and among them is, of course, Mercury. Uh, while, fun fact, not an original Roman god, he became a more prominent character and kind of joined the pantheon in time. Uh, and around a time when the Romans and the Greeks were kind of syncing things up there was kind of this like cultural clash of these two cultures so a lot of things had to kind of be like reconciled which is why there are a lot of weird connections between greek and roman mythology where a lot of characters seem to have like very odd overlaps and almost seem like someone's copying someone's homework is the shitty joke i've heard and i know and i'm sure like i'm saying this for the audience because mary if you don't know this i'd be shocked but mercury is nearly a mirror image of the greek hermes both are messengers of the god, both are known for speed, both often are pictures with the Caduceus staff. And both are tricksters. And both are tricksters, and we do see even in this episode, Mercury kind of has some fun with that. Oh, absolutely he does. Next up is one of my favorites, and again, for any Marvel fans out there, I'm, the image is already in your mind when I say Odin. Both from pagan and Norse mythology, uh, again, there's a lot of crossover as well in these, and he is a character who is prominent in both. He is associated with a crapload of things, wisdom, healing, death, royalty, Knowledge, war, battle, victory, sorcery, poetry, and frenzy. I mean, just like, what can't Odin do? Love him. 
And also just like a really like I feel like Odin's like general enough, but I mean like yes, he is like the ultimate god in Norse mythology. He is the all father. He is while there are people above him in his own ancestors, he is very much like the top of the family tree in the current Norse mythology. Uh, and also, just a really fun fact about Odin: uh, it is believed the image of Odin, this classic older, bigger, stronger man with a white beard, uh, may have influenced another um, mythological figure who recently had a holiday just pass. Ho ho ho. Santa! <laughs> Santa's white beard and big frame are thanks to Odin, most likely. Uh, next up, we have probably the character who is the most relevant this episode, and that is Kali, a Hindu goddess who is considered to be the goddess of ultimate power, time, destruction, and change. And while she is considered a goddess of destruction, it's actually in reference to her destruction of evil and protection of order and the innocence. So it's interesting how, like, she is... Like, oh, the goddess of destruction, like, oh, big, scary. And it's like, yeah, big and scary, but like destroying the bad things to protect the innocent and the good and the light and the pure. Female studies here, we can get into a lot of conversation about that. I don't think I have enough time for that. And I don't think you have enough time for that. It's easy to see her as just like a depiction of like a quote unquote female rage. But like it's at the end of the day, it's that rage that helps to build more just systems in society. For as little as I think we can afford to get into it, incredibly well said. Almost like I study this stuff. <laughs> and uh, just some fun things about Callie is generally she is depicted uh, either completely black or completely blue, usually with fangs. And having either four or ten arms, I'm not sure why those are the numbers they chose, but multiple arms. And also she is sometimes known to wear a skirt or a garland made from human hands and arms. I don't know what that says, but I'm guessing it's people who deserved it. Take it that way. Next up is Baron Sandy, who I was shocked that I didn't know more about. And as I read about them, I was like, oh, like I'm making connections here. He is an Iwa uh, in the Haitian voodoo tradition. This is a spiritual mediator between humans and the afterlife. So not a god. They don't use the term god. I, I almost kind of see it as like, it's interesting because I feel like the closest I can think of are some of the Egyptian gods who have like very niche roles. They're still considered gods, but they are very much just like the same way in like Judeo-Christianism, we may have like death at the river sticks kind of thing, or just like death who was a, you know, an afterlife carrier. We don't consider death to be a god per se. So like a reaper, maybe? If a reaper were a god? Well, again, because I don't think the Iwa are on the level of a god. In the show, they do compare them as such. They kind of blanket statement it. Baron Samdi, if they were written to supernatural in a way that better fit the culture of uh, Haitian Buddhism would more likely be a reaper. Uh, and they are often depicted in the top hat, black tailcoats and dark glasses uh, and also cotton plugs in their nose. And this is because it's to make them resemble a corpse being prepared in traditional Haitian style. And they are frequently depicted either as a black man or as a skeleton. And usually when they are depicted as uh, more human, like they do have skeletal features, whether they be painted or tattooed. Interesting. Just again, like an easy touchstone for most people might be the villain from the film uh, Princess and the Frog. Literally, in reading this description and writing it, I was like, I'm just writing the villain from that movie without just with the cotton plugs in the nose. Like, that's what they based him on, essentially. Oh, wow. And last up, I want to bring up the one who I feel is the least well represented of all of them. And I think all of them, again, are very lightly touched upon, which is why this is the only one who kind of stands out. And that is Baldur. So Baldur is actually the son of Odin. Uh, he is a god of purity and light, and he is known for his good looks and supposedly is unkillable. Uh, so of the three things we have here, purity and light, the way he kind of treats Mercury doesn't really feel very pure or light. 
the good looks, I'll give him 10 points for that one. And the supposedly is unkillable. I guess supposedly is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this sentence. So what you're saying is that Balder and Loki are brothers. So maybe I am getting my double brother trouble. Yes, which I think is interesting because I feel like they really just don't touch on the Balder-Odin relationship. And it almost feels weird that Odin would be included in this episode with Balder and not be in the like head of the table type thing. It seems very out of place for Norse mythology. Again, Norse mythology is really interesting the way Loki is treated because it, despite the fact that Marvel has made it very done, done it surprisingly well, he is an adopted son to Odin. Uh, so there is always kind of this level of like, though they refer to each other's brothers, Loki, Thor, Balder, there is kind of a level of um, distance where like they don't treat each other the same way like Thor and Balder might. Like the, the brotherly relationship they get in the Marvel movie is more what you would see between Balder and Thor, I, I would see in most uh, texts. But yeah, I feel like those were the biggest players that were worth bringing up. There's definitely more that I would love to go into, but I feel like these were the big players we had to get across and we only have so much time. Thank you, Drew. Thank you so much. That was so awesome. Oh, this was fun. And, you know, it's nice to when you have a really good, heavy lore episode like this. Like, I miss this sometimes. I love my creative writing, but this was fun. Oh, this was fun. It was a nice change of pace, for sure. It is nice. But I want to hear what you have to say about this episode. I find that this episode reminds us that in the supernatural universe, we don't exclusively deal with Christian mythology. We've been really immersed in it lately but if we think back to seasons one and two most of the monsters were like pagan gods or related to urban legends spirits demons ghosts etc and I'm, I'm specifically referring to christian mythology here because the show will treat judaism very differently than it does the rest of this particular lore and so i'm calling it christian this is a conscious choice that i'm making so sure, like even in the past, like some of this lore could have fit into Christian mythology, particularly uh, the ones about ghosts and reapers and all of that stuff, but it wasn't really the focus, right? And now that the show is depicting primarily like the Christian apocalypse, essentially, I find that it begs the question of like, how do gods from other religions and cultures feel about all this? And this is kind of something that we've like hinted at earlier in the episode. I am really unsure what to make of the message in this episode with regards to that. Because there's a point in the episode where Gabriel says that he skipped ahead and he saw how the story ends and Kelly cuts him off immediately and she says, your story, not ours. Westerners, I swear, the sheer arrogance. You think you're the only ones on earth? You pillage and you butcher in your God's name, but you're not the only religion, and he's not the only God. And now you think you can just rip the planet apart? You're wrong. There are billions of us, and we were here first. If anyone gets to end the world, it's me. And I, I, I also want to highlight here in the text, like when she says, you're not the only religion, and he's not the only God. So she's clearly referring to one religion not whatever Judeo-Christian ideology would be, because that is a whole can of worms that I do not feel comfortable opening. So this is specifically about the Christian religion and the Christian God. I have to say that I really enjoyed this bit of dialogue. Like, it speaks very clearly about the realities and the profound harm, in particular of colonization and, like, mass forced conversions to Christianity that basically 
came along with the process of colonization. So like that's the spoken message in the episode. But then if we look at what happens narratively, like Lucifer kills most of the gods and Callie is only saved because Gabriel, Sam and Dean gives off such white savior vibes to me. So like overall, I feel like the theoretical idea is really interesting, but the execution is so shoddy because it it comes back into the trope of of like well, this is not as important as whatever else is happening. I feel like, again, the rose-tinted glasses I kind of come out of these episodes with, and I think my sheer love for what the episode did on a very macro scale in just introducing them and, like, making us aware they exist and giving us that side of the story was so uplifting and fun and, like, refreshing that the Pocahontas of it all didn't... Like, as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, like, that's the axe that was hanging over our heads here, wasn't it? Like, on the one hand... For the storytelling's perspective, this at least gets rid of those gods in the story, so suddenly it's 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 a moot point. But it really gives off white savior vibes. You are so right, and that is such a black spot on this episode. I mean, the white savior part to me is the fact that Kelly is only saved because of three white men. The rest of it is just like ethnocentricism, where like you will always center your own culture, I guess, or in this case the culture, the dominant culture represented in the show is centered no matter what. Like, there's no excusing it. There's the, like, it's written this way. They needed an out to do it. Was this the best way to do it? With what you've presented here clearly and brought to light, clearly it is not, and we can all agree on that. Just again, it feels like the, this is very the Davin Laughlin of it all, of the underlying intention of, well, we have to deal with the fact that there's other religions and other gods. And, you know, obviously a god from one religion should be as powerful as a god from another religion. Like, how do we rectify all this? And then, oh, well, Lucifer is just more powerful because Christianity. So he kills all of them super easily. And, oh, we should save one of them. Okay, uh, the hot one who's sleeping with Gabriel gets to be saved because Gabriel's all like, I'm a good guy now. It's just very like... You got to the point we needed for, like, plot's sake, but you did it real badly. Let's go listen to what our community has to say. This week, we have a message from Chess. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, Is the trickster really dead this time? for our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. I've been making my way through your podcast uh, while I do prep work at work, and it's really nice to just have something to zone out to. Um, and I've been, and I was listening to your episode on the monster at the end of this book, season four, episode 20 some. Um, and I love that episode. <laughs> For a lot of reasons, obviously, but one of the big ones is because it's named after a Sesame Street book, um, which was my favorite book as a kid. It's about Grover, and it's called The Monster at the End of This Book, obviously. And it's Grover like, I heard there's a monster at the end of this book. I'm so scared. We can't get to the end of the book because I don't want to see the monster. And so every page is him trying further to like not get to the end of the book, like Dean 
trying not to get to the confrontation with Sam and Lilith, but every single page is that feeling and just getting closer and closer to the end of the book, to the confrontation between Sam and Lilith. And it's very interesting that they both took that uh, title, but then also like made the theme of the book, the theme of the episode, which I just found really interesting. And I always loved, but then the big surprise spoilers for the end of the monster at the end of this book um, is that it didn't matter. Like you get to the end of the book anyway, like no matter your best efforts, the pages keep turning. But the big twist is that the monster at the end of this book was Grover. And he didn't have to be scared at all because everything turned out fine because the monster at the end of the book was himself all along. And now that ties in, reveals a little bit more of the long game because there is a monster at the end of this book in Supernatural, the like season 15 monster at the end of the book. And that like very much ties into this episode, which I find so fascinating that they would take a Sesame Street book and fully commit to the theme of that book for an episode and really make that theme work. And I just wanted to know what you guys thought about that. And I wanted to say that I just really love your podcast. I love all your insights. And uh, thank you so much for listening to the voicemail. What a revelation. (laughs) So tell me your thoughts, because I have thoughts, but I want to hear yours first. Okay, so in order, one, Thank you, Karen, for that voicemail. That was so interesting because now that you say it, I realize I have seen memes referencing that book and this ep- and like the show in general, but they only came up post us discussing it. So I had never had a chance to bring it up. I now remember that I had this book as a kid. What? Because I distinctly remember that story. <laughs> and like, I guess it just my brain ever put the cover of the book and the content together in a way. So I'm like now I'm going to call my mother and be like, do you still have this? Because why would she throw away anything I ever owned? It's my mother. Moving on from there, I love the image now of just like, is Dean just Grover trying to like, you know, get away from his fate, but fate comes up anyways kind of thing? Like, is this just just an AU Grover? I now want Grover Dean fan art, please. Someone. Oh, my God, please. But also, again, I know Mary clearly knows what you're referencing with season 15. If it isn't obvious, I have no idea. And now this is lending it, like, a little bit of credence in my own crazy made-up way. <laughs> so, like, I, I don't know. I don't want to go any further. And obviously, Mary can't reveal anything for the next, like, five to ten years. Uh, but I'm, I I now have a little bit of, like, mental more red thread going on now about Chuck being a monster. Maybe Lilith comes back. We never know. True. She is in this one. Uh, the only other characters really are Cass, Sam, Dean, and um, whichever Archangel shows up to defend Chuck, we don't ever get a reference to, or at least we don't know. Karen, honestly, thank you so much for sharing this voicemail with us. I'm always so excited. Like, this is something that we don't really do, but I guess we could start doing for season six. But like the names, especially in the first five seasons, but like the names of the episodes always refer to something that is relevant to the episode. Everybody will notice that I am very, very conveniently sidestepping any conversation of what's in the voicemail because I have thoughts that I cannot share. But I'll give you an example. So Hammer of the Gods is actually the title of a book about uh, Led Zeppelin. And it was written by somebody who had spent some time with them and basically wrote about their life, their habits, what happened behind the scenes, etc. 
And this particular book was very, very, very harshly talked about by the members of Led Zeppelin and everybody around them, because they were like, this is not somebody who's been around us for more than a, who hasn't been around us all that often. From the interviews and the little clips and whatever that I could gather, it sort of sounded like perhaps it was done without much, uh, or it was done interviewing people who were disgruntled with the band and not people who actually worked with them. So anyway, again, the image versus reality, the mirage that happens in this particular thing, I think is really interesting. And like the follow through of the theme from the title, from the original source uh, that gave the inspiration for the title into the episode. I think that that like there's a paper to be written about that specifically with, with regards to Supernatural. But yeah, I, I definitely look forward to uh, watching Drew finding out who the monster at the end of the book really is. And I think, honestly, that we might have some surprises because upon listening to this voicemail, I'm starting to think about a bunch of stuff and I'm like, I have thoughts. See, there's a part of me too that is like, because I know the fandom tends to break the show up into like different eras. Like I know the first five seasons is very much the Kripke era. I know that Dab and Laughlin take over for a while. I know that Sarah Gamble has her time to shine. So like, I know there's kind of these like distinct chunks of the show. So in my head, it feels like whatever happens in season five will likely not affect season 15, other than Sam, Dean and Cass will be there facing something evil, most likely. So to know that there's such weird ties to this one season four episode is just so intriguing. I'm very, very invested now in solving this mystery and seeing the revelation and the payoff, however far away that is. If I'm staying with the theme that I talked about in Critical Time, the episode for me is a reminder that speaking for others or telling other people's stories, especially in the context of writing about cultures and struggles that aren't mine, can turn out to be very clumsy at best, hurtful. Uh, and that's not to say that it's never acceptable to write or that it's not acceptable to write about cultures and struggles that aren't your own. Of course, like, you know, there there needs to be diversity in what we're writing. However, there's a need, there's a need for being very careful when we tell the stories of others uh, that I am not sure that I'm seeing in this episode, or at least not to the standards that I would like to see. I think we can both fully agree with that. And I think you're right. It, it's it's never not acceptable, but there is a balance to be struck there. We, we've discussed it ourselves off air a little bit, but we are in a position where we have a bit of a voice in a community. And while we can discuss things, there's only so far you and I can extend our knowledge before we step into territory that is not our own. So it's important to highlight what we can and then bring in experts and professionals in their own fields to go further. So again, I feel like there's a balance that we can strike. Funny enough, my um, reflection called Actions Week is very much centered on balance. And I think we all need to find our own inner balance, uh, myself very clearly, uh, to use the old adage, there are two wolves inside of me. One is Sam, who is suspicious of everything. And the other is Dean, who is like, ooh, free pie. While I can tend to lean one way more than the other, and I think you know which way that is, 
there needs to be a balance there. There is, you know, the old adage, uh, too good to be true. It comes from somewhere. And as much as I like to put faith in people, sometimes you can put a little too much faith in somebody or be a little too quick to assume the best intents and, uh, pay the, um, pay the, uh, the toll on that. But on the other hand, uh, there are times where you doubt someone, you don't give them the benefit of the doubt, you're opposed to something, and then you learn later on that you were mistaken. So it, it's to strike up that balance and to wait, to take a few extra seconds in myself to weigh on those scales of whether this is a suspicious Sam or a free pie Dean moment. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigoureux, and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira L. and Jeremiah Thomas, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Chess for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. Sound effect goes here. <laughs>